for several years, and then most recently was pastoring at First Baptist Church in Hacienda Heights. So our brother Jason's coming to bless us through Luke 11, 37 to 44. Thanks, brother. Thanks, PJ. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you and to have this opportunity to see something of what God is doing here in Bellflower. I have heard much about Bethany, and I am encouraged by all the things that I hear having served uh, at First Baptist Hacienda Heights over the last two and a half years. It's been a delight uh, to partner together with this church, particularly most recently through the counseling conference a year ago with Deepak Reju. Uh, we've been able to share members with one another, but it's a delight to finally see you all. Before I became a pastor, I worked as a paralegal at a law firm. And the first case I worked on was a, a murder case. I was able to go with the attorneys to court. And at the trial, I entered that courtroom. wonder if you can picture a courtroom in your mind's eye. I saw the different participants involved in the case for the first time. There was the accused or the defendant. There were uh, the lawyers at their tables. And there was the jury hearing the case. And up on the bench was the judge. In C.S. Lewis's famous essay, God in the Dock, Lewis describes a role reversal in man's relationship with God. Dock is an old English word for the place in a courtroom where the accused or the defendant sits. Lewis says that God is the supreme judge, but mankind has attempted to switch places with God, putting him on trial instead. As Lewis puts it, quote, man is on the bench as judge and God is in the dock as accused. In other words, humanity has dared to put its creator on trial. In our passage this morning, something similar is taking place. A Pharisee assumes the place of judge evaluating Jesus. As we'll see, he assumes the role of accuser, judge, and jury in one fell swoop. But as Luke will show us, it is Jesus alone who is the true judge of all the earth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 11. Luke 11 in your New Testament, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 11, verses 37 to 44. We're here in the second part of Luke's gospel. And for those who don't know, Luke was a doctor in the first century. He was one of Paul's ministry associates. And Luke wrote this account of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection, so that the reader, he puts it in chapter 1, would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Jesus has been demonstrating in the first half of Luke that he is the Messiah of Israel. And Jesus has set his face now, it says in Luke, the end of Luke 9, towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, the place where he would suffer and die for sinners. And here in Luke 11, Jesus has been speaking to the Jewish crowds. The crowds are claiming to be undecided about Jesus. They've demanded from him more convincing signs or proof that he is the Messiah, though he had been doing many miracles. Jesus refuses to give in to their games, and he warns them about their spiritual blindness, saying this in chapter 11, verses 34 and 35, just before our section. 
Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Our section comes immediately after this. And the passage, our passage, demonstrates these people's spiritual blindness. The religious leaders were blind, confused in their understanding, and they were living a sinful lifestyle. Jesus shines a bright light into this darkness. And rather than turning from their sin, their anger towards him only grows. So our main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Our main point is this from the text. Self-righteousness leads to eternal death. Self-righteousness leads to eternal death. And I pray that this morning that we would see that the same judge of the self-righteous is also the Savior who justifies sinners, those who turn to him in repentance and faith. And I hope that you would be able to apply this as a church, those that have been cleansed by Christ, to build a culture of faithfulness, of honesty, of vulnerability and love. Let's begin by reading the passage. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus has a complicated relationship with the religious leaders. That is a serious understatement. These men don't trust Jesus. They're suspicious of him. They feel threatened by him. He's a danger to their position and the power that they have over the people. Now, these Pharisees are uh, the most conservative religious group among the Jews in Jesus' time. They were the strict rule keepers. Now, there are other groups that you'll read about as you read uh, the gospel accounts. There are the Sadducees, which were a wealthy class of priests who controlled the temple. They were the ones who controlled that business racket around the temple with the money changing and charging exorbitant prices for sacrifices to the pilgrims who came. The Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, wanted Jewish political independence from Rome. Then there were the Herodians. They were a pragmatic political group who supported the Roman king, Herod. There were also the scribes. The scribes were a subgroup. These were the copyists of God's word who were experts in the scripture because it was their full-time job to literally write the Old Testament scriptures down in scrolls for uh, God's people to be able to read, to read. And as the passage right after this shows, there were lawyers too. These were the experts in the law who were giving advice and arguments on how to apply and obey God's word. Now, many Jews of Jesus' day looked to the Pharisees to teach them about God, about his word, and about his laws. 
And so when Jesus arrives on the scene doing miracles and demonstrating great authority, it is the Pharisees who show up to evaluate him. Sometimes they would invite Jesus to meals to evaluate him up close. You know the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. It looks like that's what's going on here. This invitation in verse 37 is probably that. Back in chapter 7, there was a similar invitation from a Pharisee named Simon. He hosted Jesus for a meal and observing him, concluded that he could not be a prophet because he allowed a sinful woman to anoint him, or as he saw it, to defile him. Jesus rebukes him in that passage, Luke 7. Here, Jesus comes to dinner, and in the minds of the Pharisee and his friends, Jesus is the one being evaluated. The dining room has been turned into a courtroom. Often there Intent is to discredit Jesus. And we know this because right after our passage, in verse 54, it says that they were lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And I love how Jesus comes to dinner, and right out of the gate, he makes a party foul. He doesn't wash before dinner. And in this court of public opinion, we will see, as we heard about at the beginning of this sermon, all of the familiar characters and all of the familiar parts of a trial. So point number one this morning is this, the false judge or the false judges represented here by this Pharisee. Point number one, false judges. Let's read again verses 37 and 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. In his mind, this Pharisee has put Jesus in the dock. The man believes that he has the right to evaluate Jesus. And before the meal even begins, the text tells us that he is astonished by Jesus. The Greek word for astonished or amazed has been used throughout this book so far to describe people's reaction to Jesus' miracles, his miraculous signs. They're astonished by his great power and authority. But here this Pharisee is astonished, not by Jesus' miracles, but by Jesus' alleged rule-breaking. And already this man has judged Jesus. He's thinking, what kind of prophet breaks such important religious rules? Before we go any farther, can you relate to this man and this scene? Perhaps you question others in your heart because they don't do the things the way that you would do them or because they don't agree with you about some secondary issue. Now let's be clear, Jesus hasn't broken any of the Old Testament laws. He's the perfect, sinless Son of God. He's never broken any of God's law. In fact, he is the fulfillment of it. What Jesus is guilty of here is ignoring the Pharisees' man-made rules. The Pharisees not only interpreted and taught Old Testament law for God's people, They also added many rules of their own. We all can tend to do this. Some of their rules softened the laws of God, which they found to be too hard, lowering the bar of obedience to God. For example, their practice of Corbin, which you can read about, where they encouraged people to devote money that they would have given to honor their parents and provide for their parents in their old age, devoting that to the Lord and then excusing them from from obeying God's law. 
But other laws, other rules that they added, like these cleansing rules, were add-ons to God's law. Rules to demonstrate additional concern for holiness, merely on the outside. Rules like these rep uh, uh, repetitive ceremonial washings, including before meals. In reality, they valued the appearance of being clean on the outside without a genuine concern for being clean on the inside. The Old Testament ceremonial law code instructed God's people about their sin and about God's holiness. The laws of Exodus, of Leviticus, and Deuteronomy gave clear instructions about cleanliness, about how God's people would be defiled in his sight ceremonially and how they could be made ceremonially clean after such defilement. The law taught that sinners, those who've disobeyed a holy God, were not able to even approach God until they had been made clean. That's the point behind the laws of God, the continued reminder of the need to become clean and a pointer to the sacrifice to the Redeemer who would come. And yet, as we'll see with great irony, here is the holy, unapproachable God sitting in their dining room. Jesus, God become man, the one who had come to make sinners clean, make sinners truly clean, is here with them. And they're concerned about whether he's keeping their rules and customs as if they're holier than Jesus himself. It's laughable. Now, the Pharisees, at one level, had some good motivation for their rule-keeping. In part, their rule-keeping came from a desire for the nation to be holy, believing that with holiness they could earn God's favor and blessing. And while they may have had some good motivation, they were seriously misguided. And one of the most important ways they were misguided was in how they read their Bibles. They read their Bibles as merely a list of rules to keep, rather than seeing it for what it is. God's self-revelation of himself and a record of God's redemption of his people fulfilled in the person in their midst, Jesus Christ. And while Jesus accepted the hospitality of the Pharisee, he does not obey their man-made rules. And in standing apart, Jesus knowingly subjects himself to public ridicule. These leaders are itching to judge Jesus, but as we will see, they're merely false judges with no real authority. That's point number one, false judges. Point number two, the true judge. Point number two, the true judge. Look at verse 39, just the first four words there. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees. Notice how Luke phrases the beginning of verse 39. And the Lord said. Jesus is the Lord. Luke wants his readers to know for sure. He wants you to know for sure who Jesus really is, even though these false judges don't. There is incredible irony here. These religious leaders are placing themselves on the bench, and they've put Jesus in the dock, when in fact Jesus is the Lord, their judge. Here, Jesus turns the tables. Court is now in session. And it's the religious leaders who are now on trial. Do you see here, friends, who Jesus is? He is the Lord, God himself in human flesh, the judge of all the earth who has drawn near. I wonder if you, like me, at times find yourself putting Jesus, putting God on trial. 
We can find ourselves putting God in the dock like these religious leaders did. It may not look like this scene, but there are ways we are tempted to misjudge his wisdom, his goodness, or his power. I can do this too, questioning God's goodness, his wisdom, and his sovereignty as I face difficulties in life. 2020 has offered me, as I'm sure you too, many opportunities for this. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you not to seek to turn the tables on God, but relate to him as the God that he is. We are to relate to him, not as judges putting him on trial, but as children drawing near to him in humility and trust, asking him to give us wisdom to understand his will and to sustain us through trials in life. Friends, do you realize that you, like these religious leaders, need pardoning? That you, like these leaders, need to be made clean too. This is the wonderful truth at the heart of this passage. Jesus is the Lord, and while he is the judge, while he will pronounce judgments on these sinful people, their judge and your judge has drawn near, not to destroy, but to save. John three seventeen says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. As I studied this passage to preach it, I kept thinking of the awkwardness of this scene. I kept thinking of how awkward socially it was for Jesus to create a scene in his host's house. Feel that awkwardness. But remember this, at least Jesus went. He accepted the invitation. And he did this knowing who they were and what was in their hearts. Knowing that leaders like this, maybe even some of these exact ones, were going to bring about his death in the days ahead. He went. Would we? And he didn't blend in. He didn't sneak out. No, he stayed. And he lovingly spoke words of truth, words of conviction, and words of salvation for those with ears to hear. Christmas, which we've just uh, celebrated, is a time of remembering Emmanuel, God with us. Remembering that God in the person of Jesus Christ has come near, not to condemn, but to save. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to believe in this Jesus, to look to him for your cleansing. All of us are sinners. Cling to Jesus his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and scripture tells us you too will be saved. Well, now it has become obvious who should be in the dock or on trial, not Jesus, but the Pharisees. So point number three, the guilty. Point number three, the guilty. Look at verses 39 to 41. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Let's pick up at verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Imagine the man's shock. He's just been thinking thoughts. 
Perhaps his face has betrayed him, but he hasn't even said anything out loud. But Jesus even takes issue here with his thoughts. Jesus addresses the thoughts of this false judge by using their hand-washing ceremony as an illustration of the deeper issue. The kind of cleanliness that they promote is only skin deep. A member of my church used a similar illustration in an evening message recently. Not, not washing dishes, but putting them in the dishwasher and then putting them back into the cabinet. I wonder if you've ever done that. I've done that accidentally. I cringed hearing that illustration. I definitely cringed reading this. Can you imagine doing the dishes and being very careful only to clean the outside of your plates and your cups and then reusing them? As someone who has some slight OCD tendencies, this idea gives me the heebie-jeebies. But it's what we do with spiritual cleanliness, isn't it? We clean up the outside and we hope for the best. But God isn't requiring the appearance of godliness. He demands perfect righteousness inside and out, which none of us have on our own. Jesus calls the Pharisees fools in verse 40, language from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Fool is someone who does not know God and who is wise in his own eyes. These Pharisees are concerned with their outward appearance, and yet they have no concern for the purity of their own hearts, which are full, Jesus says, of greed and wickedness. Verse 41 is perhaps a little confusing. It says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. We've already heard uh, PJ giving encouraging comments to us about our giving, that our giving should come out of a cheerful heart. You know, there is a giving that is merely external. It appears that what Jesus is saying here is that the self-righteous should be giving alms or money to the poor, not simply as a show or a demonstration of their own righteousness, but they need to have a pure heart and give out of a pure heart to demonstrate that they are clean on the inside, something that they haven't done yet. This shows that these people are confused about the problem. They aren't giving to the poor. They're greedy and their religion is a performance. They've misunderstood the problem of sin. They're scrubbing the outside clean and they neglect the greater problem of sin within. But it also shows that they've misunderstood the process of how it is that we become clean. Their confusion about the problem of their sin leads them to be confused on how the problem of sin is to be dealt with. And they're attempting to do it through religious rule keeping. Friends, are you tempted to put up a front? Do you know that this is one of the most dangerous things that you can do for your own soul as a Christian? To put up a front that you're doing well when you really aren't. Let me encourage you, friends. Let people in on your stuff. God's people are not afraid of the light. But this can be destructive not only for yourself, but also for the culture of the church as a whole. Pretending that we're good is bad for us. Let me say that again. Pretending we're good is bad for us, and it's bad for others too. It creates a toxic culture in the church. Brothers and sisters, we should be those who share freely both our struggles and our victories in Christ. Let's not be like the Pharisees, concerned with our appearances. 
concerned with keeping up appearances. Remember, Jesus welcomed sinners who brought their sin to the light. Run to Jesus, friends, and bring others to Jesus, too. Now that Jesus has turned the tables on the Pharisees and stated the case of their guilt of self-righteousness, Jesus then judges these criminals. We see the case moving forward as Jesus, the judge, declares them guilty. These woes are pronouncements of judgment, of guilt. So point number four, the judgment. Point number four, the judgment. Woe to you. Look at verses 42. Sorry, look at verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We'll work through these woes one at a time. You see here with the first woe, these Pharisees have missed the main point, the main thing. They're keeping man-made rules at the expense of God-given laws. They are tithing, giving a tenth of every vegetable and herb that they grow. They are being meticulous about their rule-keeping, and yet they're keeping the wrong rules. They've missed the forest for the trees. They're painstaking in their concern with details of their rules, and yet their hearts are far from God. Do you remember the two greatest commandments? First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 42. They've neglected the love of God. And the second greatest commandment, which Jesus says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also summarizes this command in verse 42 with that single word, justice. Not only are we called to love God, we are also called to do justice. We are called to treat those around us rightly or justly, which we read about in Zechariah so clearly, Zechariah 7, earlier in the service. As Christians, as redeemed people, what this means to do justice doesn't mean giving others what they deserve. It means, as Zechariah 7 puts it so clearly, Loving others because God has first loved us. We are the redeemed and pardoned of God, and so we treat others with grace, since we have been recipients of God's grace. And we don't love to be loved. We love because we have been loved so lavishly through Christ. My dad, my dad told me the story of a conversation that he had on a plane. My dad's a pastor. As he was talking with the guy next to him, the guy found out that he was a Christian and a pastor, and he said, Christians are all hypocrites, and I don't want anything to do with Christians. I don't want anything to do with the church. And my dad replied very wisely, oh, come on, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? We all pretend that we are better than we really are. We all hold others to standards that we don't keep ourselves. The man was shocked, but eventually he agreed. You're right, I'm a hypocrite too. You see, that's proof that there's a problem. The fact that we're all seeking to cover up our junk means that there's a problem. And it should not surprise us that even Christians struggle with hypocrisy. We're all human. This is not a Pharisee-only problem. This is a human problem. Acts chapter 5 records the account of Ananias and Sapphira, a passage we studied recently at our church just a couple of weeks ago. These... Uh, these two, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, made even their church offering a show of great sacrifice to win respect and applause within the church family. And God judges them by striking them both dead, leading to fear coming upon the people and a great concern about 
holiness. Jesus then brings his second pronouncement of judgment to the Pharisees. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus exposes the Pharisees' motivation. They do what they do, not for God, but for the applause of man. Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. The Pharisees aren't in this to know God and to be known by him and to draw closer to him. Religiosity is their means for getting notoriety, respect, and position. The Apostle Paul wrote that there were similar kinds of people in the church. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, there were people who have the appearance of godliness, but were denying its power. Christians, there's a, a temptation here for us as well. We can slowly, subtly begin to be more concerned by what others think of us than about what God thinks of us. Even as a pastor, I can focus on what people think of my ministry more than focusing on glorying, glorifying God and serving God's people. Jesus warns about this kind of religion in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to step on some toes, including my own, by making a few comments about social media. Our marketplaces now are on the in internet, particularly in a time of social distancing where we can't be spending time around people. Instead of greetings in public places, we go for the likes and the hearts and the comments. Friends, be careful with your social media activity. Now, I'm not going to say that all social media is bad. It can be useful. It can be edifying. It can be encouraging. But beware that your presence online doesn't turn into a space for hypocrisy, a place for comparing, or even worse, a search for identity. Some application for parents as well. Parents, I wonder, what are you modeling for your children? Are you demonstrating a greater concern for your reputation about how your children make you appear than you are in loving your children well? Are you modeling repentance for your children or self-righteousness? My wife and I have talked often about how easy it is for us as parents to demand perfect obedience from our children when we fail daily in our own relationship with God. And we ourselves are in need of constant grace. Let me encourage you, parents, to give room for grace to your children, even as you lovingly train and discipline them. Now, as these leaders were in positions of authority, a few comments on those who have positions of authority. Are you a supervisor? Are you a boss? Do you have employees? I wonder what is your reputation among your coworkers, particularly among those under you? Do you see your authority as an opportunity to care for others, to serve them, to help them to grow? Or are you more concerned with them making you look good? Let me encourage you in your work as well to be imitating Jesus with a genuine concern for others and not simply a concern with success or with appearances at work. And then 
let me encourage you as a church. Here within the church among fellow members, are you, brothers and sisters, quicker to assign bad motives to people or are you quicker to pray for them? Let me encourage you to move towards people and have loving conversations with them, pointing them to Christ rather than keeping people at arm's length and judging them in your hearts. This can be so toxic for the culture of the church. Do you spend way too much energy reading into what others do or don't do? Do we treat people differently depending on what they offer us or what they may offer to our reputation? Friends, we shouldn't be marked by these things, even in the quiet of our own hearts, because Jesus was not marked by these things either. As the new covenant people of God, we need to be those who not only know God's words, but also apply them out of love and not simply to serve our own ends, but to glorify God. Let's pray for God's help in this. Jesus then brings his third pronouncement of judgment in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus here compares the Pharisees with unmarked graves. In the Old Testament law code, dead bodies were unclean, and touching a dead body made a person ceremonially unclean before God. Walking over an unmarked grave would make a person unclean, though they'd be unaware of it. That's what Jesus means in this third charge against the Pharisees. Not only were the Pharisees unclean themselves, they were leading others to be unclean as well. Their system of rule keeping and their focus on external righteousness led others astray too. If you want to know whether you've gone the way of the Pharisees, see if your influence on others is a corrupting one. Jesus says that these teachers have corrupted others and led them away from God. People didn't love God more because of them. They were actually leading them closer to eternal death instead of towards eternal life. Teachers are held to a higher standard. They are judged by God more strictly, James 3.1. James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I do want to say at this point, not wanting to be a Pharisee isn't an excuse to stop growing or refusing to care for others spiritually. As if you're more spiritual by refusing to teach or by doing nothing obviously bad. Sometimes hiding is a form of legalism if it comes from a place of wanting to manage how people will view you. But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not only be concerned with legalism, which is so clear here in this passage in terms of the sin of these Pharisees. We can react from a kind of legalism and think, as long as I'm not legalistic, I'm okay with God. But liberty and license isn't the antidote to legalism. Getting what I want however I can and disregarding God's laws is just as wrong as placing our hope in rule-keeping to save us. And while Jesus is the true judge, the Bible's picture of Jesus here is that he's gentle and lowly. He has come near, not because we earned it or deserve it, but he has drawn near because he is kind and because he is good. Point number five, the verdict. Point number five, the verdict. We all know how a court case ends. We hope that justice is served as we watch shows, as we watch movies about injustice. We want to see justice served, and we hope that that happens. But how does this case end? Brothers and sisters, how will your case end? 
For a passage like this judges not just these self-righteous Pharisees. It puts all of us in the place of the guilty. But friends, take heart. The very, very good news of the scriptures is that the judge has come to justify hypocrites like you and like me if we will repent and believe. This passage exposes the weight and the depth of our sinful hearts. But the beautiful truth is that Jesus has come for hypocrites. In his wonderful new book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes this about Jesus. Jesus is meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not harsh or reactionary. He is not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply this. Open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. This is just what the Pharisees would not do. They would not admit their hypocrisy, their sin, and their need for salvation. In John 3, 16 to 21... Jesus says so clearly, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This should give you and me hope, hope for hypocrites like us and hope that we can not only be saved, but that we can be so changed that we can be instruments of Christ in the lives of others. So point number six, our final point, the result, the fallout. The saved are justified by Christ, and then we are able to imitate our Savior by showing mercy to others and then building a kind of culture, not like the Pharisees, where everyone is seeking to keep up appearances and to pretend that they're better than they are, but no, a culture of faithfulness, of honesty of vulnerability and love i want to thank you bethany baptist for this opportunity to minister the word to you and it's a joy for me to come and to see your church for the first time and while i've never met you i have heard about your church for many years and the things that i've heard have only been encouraging that these kinds of things are true among you the apostle paul in the new testament had relationships with churches that he hadn't met i love that the New Testament letters of Romans and Colossians are written to churches Paul had not been to, but heard about. Now, I'm not an apostle, but I love hearing about God's work in other places and other churches. And I have often prayed for you. And the reports that I've heard are that you are a church that knows the gospel and lives out the gospel in the way that you love and care for one another. I've seen your pastor lead in humility and lead with a marked vulnerability. He's known for that, and I'm encouraged by that. So let me encourage you all to do this too, to follow this example. Continue to be concerned for one another's life and holiness. Bear each other's burdens. Point each other towards the Savior. Remind one another that Jesus came not to add more burdens to us, but to lift them. 
That's what the Pharisees did to the people of God. They heaped more burdens on people and then wouldn't lift a finger to help. Christians should be those who lighten one another's burdens as we bear with one another in love, pray for one another, help one another practically, and point one another towards Christ. So Bethany Baptist, my encouragement to you is this. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Make the culture of this church one of honesty, vulnerability, mercy, and love. And as you do that, you will help each other see the freedom and the sweetness of a life centered around Christ rather than the burden of a life centered around self. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we give you